Bibles to Acts chapter 21, to Acts chapter 21, as we continue our study in the book of Acts. This morning, we are going to learn about the warnings of the Holy Spirit, the warnings of the Holy Spirit. Up to now, Paul has made three missionary journeys, and now he's getting ready to go back to the city of Jerusalem. But along the way, he's getting warnings from the Holy Spirit. He knows that trouble is waiting for him when he gets back to Jerusalem. Chapter 20 last week ended with the uh, emotional touching, uh, the emotional and touching meeting that Paul had with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And now he gets on a ship for the journey that will take him back to Israel. So let's begin now with verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass that when we, again Luke speaking, that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad, I'm sorry, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there, the ship was to unload her cargo. It says here in verse 1, when we had departed from them. That can be interpreted after tearing ourselves away from them. His friends loved Paul so much and vice versa. You know, they literally had to tear themselves apart when they left each other. Paul and his group sailed from Miletus to Kos, then to Rhodes, then to Patera, and it was a three-day journey. Paul wasn't comfortable taking a ship that stopped at every seaport. He wanted the express, and that's what it means here when he found a ship running a straight course. <clears throat> it means it didn't stop at any other places along the way. It was just a straight shot to where he was going, to Phoenicia. He and his friends boarded that ship. It was a journey of about 400 miles. Verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> and finding the uh, disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and we went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So here we see the Holy Spirit warns this first time in the, in the chapter here. Now, there are two thoughts about whether or not the Holy Spirit was actually telling Paul, forbidding Paul to go to Jerusalem. There's a couple of thoughts here. One thought is that the Holy Spirit was telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Which, when you read the text, that seems to be what it says. The other thought is that the Holy Spirit was warning Paul that if he went, he would be imprisoned and he would suffer some hardships in Jerusalem, which the disciples entire understood as meaning that he shouldn't go because it said the Spirit through the disciples told Peter, I'm sorry, told Paul. So the disciples understood 
that Paul wasn't to go, and that's what they told him. Now, the warning did cause the disciples who loved Paul, and they didn't want to see him hurt. They didn't want to see him uh, get discouraged from continuing his journey. Uh, But Paul had already made up his mind clearly of his sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit back in chapter 16, verse 6. Now, those who believe the Holy Spirit was was specifically forbidding Paul... Forbidding Paul that, that he go to Jerusalem that, that he was going to Jerusalem against God's will. But did he? Again, those who believe that the Spirit was specifically forbidding Paul say that are saying that he went to Jerusalem in disobedience. But again, did he really? Maybe the Lord was telling Paul what would happen if he goes there, but leaving the choice up to Paul. Paul had already said that he was bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem in chapter 20, verse 22. And the Lord told Ananias in Acts 9, 16, Jesus said, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And then later on in chapter 23, verse 11 of Acts, Jesus himself encouraged Paul concerning his decision to go. So it's not that the Holy Spirit in these men that the Holy Spirit spoke to contradicted what Paul's incentive was for going, which which caused him to go to Jerusalem. Here's the sense. These disciples, by the spirit of prophecy, knew that if Paul went to Jerusalem, that many evil things would happen to him there. So out of their own feelings and out of love for Paul, they advised him not to go. Many times we do the same thing meaning well you know the, the lord the lord speaks to somebody that you love you, you know them and and that god's you know spoke to them and said you know what do this do that and then you from your feelings and, and your perspective think oh i don't know if that's such a good idea you know maybe that's this the wrong move and i just don't feel it's right and we try to talk them out of what god has put in their heart to do And at that time, we become like little gods. We don't know what God wants to do. There might be something, and God doesn't do things randomly. You know, and so this person, God may have something for them. He wants to teach them something. He's going to show them something, uh, something that that this person's been praying for. God's going to answer it through this move that they're going to make. And we're saying, don't go. It's not going to be good for you. And again, so, and, and... Many times it works. They don't go. And they miss out on what God wants to do for them, or God wants to do with them. And so we, we really have to be careful when we're, you know, looking at it from our feelings and our, our, our viewpoint that uh, I don't think this is such a good idea. You know, they have to, the person going or whatever they're going to, they have to know that God has told them. Just like Paul said, I am bound in the spirit to go. I got to go. So again, after that, Paul and his friends, they go down to the beach. They all knelt down together at the shore. They prayed together, said their goodbyes, and off he goes. Look at verses 7 through 9 now. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. 
Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now in the New Testament, the gift of prophecy wasn't necessarily predicting future events. It wasn't telling what was going to happen in the future as much as it was speaking forth God's truth through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.3, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it says that God promised through the prophet Joel that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul wrote about women praying and prophesying in the church, so he didn't forbid that. The only role in the church that Paul prohibited women to take was that of an overseer in a pastor-teacher role, 1 Timothy 2, 12-14. But everything else was open. Women could share a testimony of what the Lord had been doing in their lives. They could encourage people to pray more or to trust the Lord. They could, not, they could exhort people to praise and, and, and the Lord and to worship Him. And all of these were perfectly acceptable. So, again, the only thing that Paul prohibited was, again, for the woman to be in a pastor role, teacher, uh, which, again, you know, many say Paul was a male chauvinist on, you know, or, or looking at women as inferior. This is not a question of male chauvinism or women's inferiority or human rights. It is the will of God. Why? We don't know. There's a lot of reasons that, 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 that we, that things that we don't know, but it's the will of God, and, and when, if it's the will of God, then we say, okay, Lord, you know. you know. It's your purpose, it's your will. Verses 10 through 12. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So the Holy Spirit speaks again. In chapter 11, Agabus predicted that there would be a famine in the land. Now, this is an example where the gift of prophecy is used to predict future events. Because, again, Agabus, Agabus in chapter 11 predicted there would be a famine. And because the Jews didn't have the power to implement or to enforce capital punishment, being turned over to the Gentiles meant crucifixion for Jesus. So, so Paul's pro, uh, friends are probably thinking that it was being the same thing for him. That if we turn them over, if they go and they get into the hands of the Gentiles, they're going to crucify him. And later on, Paul was martyred in Rome, just like Agabus had said. Now, Agabus was a well-known prophet in the church at Jerusalem. So when he came down and he gave this prophecy about Paul, his friends who were traveling with him, you know, Luke, Philip, uh, his family and, and the body of Christ there at Caesarea, they all tried to get Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, verses 13 and 14. And there's Paul's answer to them when they tried to stop him from going. Paul then answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. 
So Paul wasn't afraid of anything that would happen to him or his life. They said, Paul, prison, you might be in prison. He said, prison? Hey, won't be the first time. You know, and he says, I'm not going to let that stop me. He says, and if they want to sentence me to death for preaching Jesus, I'm ready for that too. He said, as far as I'm concerned, the sooner I can be with Jesus, the better off I will be. You know, really, death would be a promotion. Now, as a Christian, how, how, how can you be threatened? How can a Christian be threatened with death? It's a promotion. Paul said in Philippians 1, 21 through 24, he wrote how he felt about death. He says, for me to live is Christ, uh, for me to die is, uh, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He says, for me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. He says, but if I live, I can do more work for Christ, more fruitful work. He says, I really don't know which is better, you know, to live or to die. He says, you know, I'm torn between the two desires. I long to be with Jesus Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. You see, Paul wanted to see heaven. He wanted to be with the Lord, but he also knew that he had a calling. He also knew the Lord had him here on earth for a reason. And we're all here for a reason. And it wasn't until Paul wrote in 2 Timothy that he recognized he had come to the end of the journey, his journey, where he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, Paul was not afraid to die, much less go to prison. You see, Paul knew God had his life in his hands and that nothing could happen to him that God hadn't allowed. And you know, as Christians, we have to grasp this. Not just read it and say how, how great that was for Paul, but it's also the same for you and me this morning. Whatever the Lord allows in your life, He has a purpose behind it. It's not just some random thing that's happening to you. No matter how hard it might be for Paul, Paul could accept it. And you see, that's the kind of, of commitment, that's the kind of submission that we all need if we're going to have any rest and any peace at all. Rather than question God and strive with God and argue with God and try to figure God out, we need to submit to His will. When the pressures of life, they start to pile up and you feel overwhelmed, that's when it's important to remember that your life belongs to the Lord. I mean, even the pressures and all that, that people have gone through in the last two years through this pandemic. The psalmist says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock, Jesus Christ, that is higher than I. Psalm 61, 2 through 4. Lead me to the rock who's higher than I because he is in control of every single thing. He's in control. He's in charge. And nothing can happen to me except for what the Lord allows. 
In Psalm 42, verse 7 through 8, the psalmist said, All your waves and billows have gone over me. God allowed the waves and the billows to go over David's head and he will allow the the waves and the billows to go over us, to go over me. The Lord, and and the finishing of that psalm is, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the nighttime, his song shall be with me. Those songs that God teaches you during the day, don't forget them in the nighttime. Those dark times. The psalmist said in Psalm 31, 15, My times are in your hand. David David had committed himself into God's hands. And now he's, he's committing his circumstances into God's hands. The words, my times, that David said, my times isn't talking about some special time or some special uh, uh, schedule. My times means all the events and circumstances that surround my life. That's what it was David saying. Lord, every circumstance, every event that surrounds my life is in your hands. It's in your time. We would say it like this today. All the affairs and details of my life are in the Lord's hands. This is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Underline the word His purpose. We forget that. According to His purpose, all things work together. Not for my purposes before what God has laid out for me. And Paul's friends were naturally worried because of the Holy Spirit's warning. Because they deeply loved Paul. And because of the warning and because of their love for Paul, that made them hesitant to see him leave and to go through any more sufferings. But when they saw that there was nothing they could do to change Paul's mind, it says they ceased. That is, they quit trying to tell him, don't go. And they submitted to God, and they said, the Lord's will be done. Which is the best thing to do. Commit to the will of God. Committing to the will of God is the key to the believer's rest. You see, when you're you're wrestling with God, and you're fighting with God, and arguing with God, or, or, or with somebody in your life. And it becomes clear, hey, it's not going to change. In other words, it is what it is. The wisest thing that you can do is just commit it to the Lord. Give it to Him. Turn it over to Him. If you don't, then the only option you have is to keep fighting against it. Tormenting yourself, tormenting your mind. Mental stress, torture, mental and emotional wear and tear. We're not called to understand God's ways. I'm glad I can't understand God's ways, so I, I say I wish I could. Because if I could understand God's ways, then I'm on the same level as God. I don't want a God that's on my level. <laughs> I want a God that's superior, infinitely more wise. Because he knows better. He knows exactly what I need. He knows how how to accomplish the things that I need. 
Again, I, I, we're not called to understand God's ways. We are called to, to, to trust and obey His words. I'm not called to understand what God has planned for me. And I'm glad. Because I, you know, I, I don't know what He has planned for me. Maybe there's some bad stuff, but I, I, don't, I would rather not know ahead of time. Because God gives me what I need at the time. Not ahead of the time. He gives, me, he gives it to me, whatever I need, at the moment I need it. So it's so much better to just turn it over to God. And when you do, you'll find rest and you'll find peace. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, 5, Commit your way to the Lord. <clears throat> Trust also in Him and He shall bring it to pass. He will help you. We have to let God be our guide. And we have to submit everything to his guidance and, and, and his way of doing things. And then, and then everything that we're concerned about, even those that seem to be the most complicated and the most troubling, will be made to turn out well and to our satisfaction. Again, our duty isn't to question everything God, God does, but to commit to everything that he does. To submit to it. When, when, when the psalmist said commit, commit, Commit it to the Lord. The word commit means to, to, to roll it off. It means to roll it off of ourselves and on to the Lord. Roll it on to the Lord. So that it doesn't afflict and overwhelm us with thoughts about future things. And, and as I said before, when, when you're worrying about future things, you're trespassing. That's God's territory. He has the future. He holds the future. Worry about things that, that, that might not even happen. But yet we, we, we torment ourselves over those things. Again, it, it's, it, God knows best. He's all wise. Leave it to Him. Because He knows best. Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three and 34, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, notice how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. It, it tells us right in scripture, his ways are past finding out and yet we still want to, God, why? My ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? You know, as we know, God doesn't think like we do. He doesn't do things the way we do things. So we have to quit trying to figure God out and let him be the sovereign almighty God. Verses 15 through 17. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And also some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought, them, uh, brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the leaders were present. And we had greeted them. He told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, notice it says there in verse 15, it says, And in those days, we, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now, these are the same people that said, Paul, don't go. I like this. 
even though they had been told more than once that Paul would be beaten and arrested in Jerusalem and that he shouldn't go, his traveling companions went with him. They wouldn't leave Paul in his time of trouble, during times of suffering. That's when true friends stick close to provide comfort and help. And when Paul got to Jerusalem, the church was glad to see him. And they were probably glad too and happy to get the financial help from the Gentile churches. Verses 18 through 22. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail, notice those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Verse 21, but they have been informed about you, they've been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Notice that. Paul was telling them about how, all that God had done, and they glorified God and didn't skip a beat and said, now wait a minute, Paul, we've got to talk to you. They changed the subject so quickly. The Jews were twisting a little bit of what Paul was actually doing. Paul didn't really teach the things they said he was teaching. Oh, Paul, you know, Paul's coming and, and he says to forsake the law and uh, don't, go, don't, don't get circumcised. And, 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 and he didn't say any of that. Paul started telling them about what God had done. He was telling about all the churches that had sprung up in the different areas and all the miracles that God was doing among the Gentiles. And the evidence of how God changed the lives of the Gentiles was, was presented to the Christians there in Jerusalem. He was telling them all about it. And the strongest, strongest evidence was the Gentile believers themselves who had gone with Paul to Jerusalem. And at this time, Paul may have also given the money that he had collected you know, from the Gentile Christians. The love that the Gentiles showed to their suffering Jewish brothers was a sign of their true conversion. And after Paul had told them what God had been doing, notice carefully what Luke said. It says in verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. They didn't glorify Paul. They gave the glory where it was properly deserved to the Lord. You know, sometimes you can tell people, in such a way, what God has done, and you come out to be the hero. They begin to glorify you. People say, oh, what a gifted man or woman, or woman you are. What, a, what an anointed man or woman you are. You're, you're, just, you're just great. But Paul didn't do that. He did just as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Men are to see what we do, but God is to get the glory. But right after they glorified the Lord, look how fast they changed the subject in verse 20. In other words, that's great, Paul, but now we don't want any problems here. Thousands of Jews are believing. They're believing in Christ. And they're zealous for the law. They wanted Christ and the law. 
But Paul has been preaching that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ apart from the law. They were believing in Jesus and the law for salvation. Paul says, uh uh, as Christ alone apart from the law. But the rumors had come back that, you know, Paul was teaching things that he wasn't teaching. And so the Jews in Jerusalem are warning Paul, Paul, don't start any problems while you're here. We're doing perfectly fine here. And then they share some of the gossip that's gone around. Now, Paul was for sure teaching that Gentiles had, you know, that, that, that these things were not necessary for salvation. Paul taught that. But as always, it was, you know, it, it, it's, it's like it is with rumors, they come back exaggerated. Paul taught salvation without the law, and here these Jews are teaching salvation with the law. There's no record of Paul teaching the Jews not to have their children circumcised either. Paul did say about circumcision that God wasn't uh, after the outward ritual. He wanted the heart circumcised. Now, these people were saying, he says, you better, repent. You better be ready, for, be better be ready, Paul. You better prepare, be prepared for these people because they're going to attack you. And it's pretty clear that the Jerusalem church was still very Jewish and they were still attached, very attached to the law to the ritual and the religion. Now, the book of Hebrews was probably written to those Jews that are being spoken of here who were still following the law. And when you read the book of Hebrews, with that view in mind, it will help you to understand why the book of Hebrews was written. uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say this. He said, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews. The Jews had a problem with Paul's message of salvation by faith alone. To them, it was faith, it was by faith and, and, and the law. Faith in the law. Paul was trying to patch up the division between the Jewish and Gentile church. The Gentiles have all the same rights as a child of God, just the same as the Jews. Jew, God, Jesus made us all alone, Galatians 3.28. He made us all one. So seeing this, these Jewish believers were going to come and they were going to challenge Paul. And so what they're going to do, they're going to tell them their plan. Look at verses 23 through 36. Now here's their plan. Therefore, do what we tell you, Paul. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that these things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing uh, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Verse 26, And then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So the leaders suggest to Paul that Paul show his respect in public for the Jewish law. And what they asked Paul to do was identify himself with these four men who had taken a Nazarite vow pay for their sacrifices and be with them in the temple during their time for purification. And Paul said, okay, he would do that. Now, 
If it had been a matter involving somebody's personal salvation, in other words, Paul, do all of this, you know, as part of salvation, you can be sure Paul would have never gone along with the idea because none of this had anything to do with salvation because this would have compromised Paul's message of salvation by grace alone through faith. This was a matter of personal conviction on the part of Jewish believers who were given the freedom to accept or reject the customs that it had nothing to do with salvation. It was, you know, as long as it had nothing to do with salvation, it would be okay. Paul went to the priest the next day. He took part in the purification ceremony. And, 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 but he personally didn't take any vows. He and the men had to wait seven days and then offer the prescribed sacrifices. So the whole plan appeared to be safe and wise, and that's why Paul went along with it. And again, it was to appease those Jews that were being legalistic, but it didn't work. It didn't satisfy them. It didn't satisfy the legalistic Jews. Instead of bringing peace, it caused an uproar, and Paul ended up in prison. Verses 27 through 30. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple." And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. So now Paul is falsely accused. This opposition came from the unbelieving Jews. The Jews from the area of Asia, they started the riot where the gospel had really experienced a lot of, of fruitfulness. Now, these men who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they recognized right away Paul, their old enemy, in the temple. And, and, and it stirred up the whole crowd and they grabbed him. And this is the sixth time that a crowd was stirred up because of Paul's ministry. So the false charges were brought against Paul and they were the same kind of charges similar to what was brought against Stephen when he was stoned. Now, when they accused Paul of bringing Greeks into the temple, all right, the temple area, they were believing a lie. If what they accused Paul of doing was true, it would have defiled their holy place. Because Gentiles were allowed only in a specific area in the court. They were allowed in the place that was designed just for Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go any further than that because it would have, it would have brought them death. They could have been killed for it. So the whole city was stirred up. They grabbed Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And after they dragged him out of the temple, they shut the gate so that no one could follow Paul into the court of the Gentiles and defile the temple. Verses 31 through 40 as we close. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. 
And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he had reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, or in other words, an important city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, and now we'll have to get into chapter 22 to figure out what he said. It's a, it's a poor, poor, poor place for a chapter break, but nonetheless, that's where the chapter has, you know, has been uh, divided. So anyway, in verses 31 through 40, as they were trying to get to Paul, as the people were trying to get to Paul to kill him, word gets to the Roman commander that all of Jerusalem, man, they were rioting. So right away, the commander calls out his soldiers and his officers, and they go down and they, they run in among the crowd. And when the mob saw uh, the commander and his troops, they, they quit beating Paul. And, and then the commander arrested Paul and ordered him to be put in chains. And then he, he asked the crowd, the commander asked the crowd, hey, you know, who is this guy? What has he done? And some shouted one thing and some shouted another. And that's what you, you get with a the mob. They're, everybody's saying something different. Nobody really knows what's going on. Since the commander couldn't find out the truth because of all of the confusion, what he does, he orders Paul to be taken to the fortress. So when Paul's starting up the stairs, the mob comes after him. They get so violent that the soldiers had to lift them up over their shoulders to protect him. And then the crowd followed behind Paul shouting, kill him, kill him. And as Paul was about to be taken inside the, the, the fortress, he says to the commander, can I have a word with you? And the commander says, do you, do you know Greek? The commander was surprised because he said, aren't you the Egyptian who led a rebellion some time ago and you took 4,000 members of the assassins out into the desert? Paul said, no. He says, I'm a Jew, a citizen of Tarsus in Cilicia, which is an important city. He says, please let me talk to these people. So the commander said, okay. So Paul stood on the stairs and motioned to the people to be quiet. Now, can you see what's going on here? Let's look at God's sovereignty, God's providence. They have this whole city gathered together. And what does Paul get to do now? Preach the gospel. Who can do something like that? Preach the gospel. It says, so when they calm down, I'm saying it says, Paul then, he, the commander says, okay, Paul. Paul stands on the stairs. He motions to the people to be quiet. And when they calm down, and things got quiet. He spoke to them in Hebrew and he began to tell them, tell them how he got saved. Amazing. He tells them about his dramatic conversion and how he went from Christianity's most violent persecutor, uh, persecutor to become Christianity's greatest missionary. You see, God said, hey, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem. 
The other people would say, oh, don't go, Paul. You're going to be arrested, man. You're going to be beaten. And, and yeah, it's true. But what is he doing now? He's giving his testimony. Only God could do something like that, could arrange something like that. So as they come down, here he is. He's now sharing the love of God. And just like the other four New Testament records of his conversion, the emphasis was on God's power and his sovereign grace, not on what Paul did. And and that's what we always have to keep in mind. Whatever God does with us and how he wants to use us is to tell people about the almighty, sovereign grace of God. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful illustration here, this example, Father, of how you move in our lives, God. Lord, we we could have never imagined or planned this out on our own, and neither could have Paul. But God, when you want to get your word out, you will use your people and you will use ways that are are not our ways and you'll use thoughts that are not our thoughts. And Father, help us to listen to you when others, even though they mean well, try to dissuade us from from going and doing with things that, that you have placed on our hearts and mind, God. So Lord, help us to follow your lead always, God. But may we be sure, may we be in such tune with you, God, that we know that it is you that is telling us to go or telling us to even stop before we make a move. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And Father, we pray that you would help us to become more sensitized to your spirit, God. That, Lord, we would be able to accomplish more, to know more, and to do more for you according to your will and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me pray.